Hey everybody, it's Matt. About to start the show, but before we do, I wanted to say a few things. First, you can follow us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. You can also subscribe to our super secret bonus content on Patreon. That's at Patreon slash SpoilersCast again. And of course, you can always rate and review us on iTunes, which we would greatly appreciate any and all of these things. And we're at There Will Be Spoilers, 100 Films, 100 Podcasts there. So enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to There Will Be Spoilers. This is episode 29. I'm Matt Bazell. And I'm Ethan Knight. And this week we watched 1994's The Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption. So Ethan, we had talked about this a few weeks prior and how yes. I think I've seen this many, many times, but over the course of two dozen plus sittings, because I don't think I've ever <laughs> seen it front to back in one sitting. The, the way you describe this film reminds me of how I feel about It's a Wonderful Life. That I don't, honest to God, I don't think I've ever sat and watched that movie the whole way through. But I guarantee you I've seen every minute of that film. But, again, broken up over 27 years. Yeah, they're both films that you see on TV a lot. Especially It's a Wonderful Life yeah. being a Christmas movie. And Shawshank seems to always be on AMC or something like that. Oh, yeah. Shawshank is always on cable television. It Listen, I could... Well, I don't have cable. But if I had cable, I guarantee you that it's on some channel right now playing. So I can say, honestly, I have now seen the film start to finish, front to back, in one sitting. I'm proud of you, Matt. Some of our listeners may not have. So, Ethan, do you think you can give us a plot synopsis? The Shawshank Redemption is the story of Andy Dufresne and Ellis Red Redding, who are two prisoners at Shawshank State Penitentiary. Andy is convicted of killing his wife and her lover, and though he pleads innocent, he's given two life sentences. When he makes it to Shawshank, Red, whose speci uh, specialty is smuggling in contraband, is initially skeptical of him, but the two end up becoming very close friends. Early in his sentence, Andy is pursued by the predatory, quote-unquote, sisters, a group of men who rape other men, and he endures sexual violence and physical beatings from them. He also asks Red to procure him a rock hammer as he plans to focus on his rock carving and collecting while serving time. Andy also eventually asks Red to get him a poster of pinup girl Rita Hayworth. So a few years into Andy's sentence, the warden decides to gather a crew of inmates to redo the prison's roof. Red bribes the guards to ensure that he and his friends, including Andy, get chosen to do the work. While tarring the roof, Andy overhears a, a guard lamenting the taxes he's going to have to pay on an inheritance. Andy informs him that he could help him avoid the taxes in exchange for three beers apiece for him and the other inmates tarring the roof. The guard agrees, and after Andy is severely beaten by the leader of the predatory sisters, the guard Andy helped beats the leader mercilessly, paralyzing him for life. 
Andy then begins to enjoy special treatment and is transferred from the laundry to the library, where he begins to help guards and the warden with taxes, and the inmates earn GEDs. He also begins writing weekly letters to the state government asking for more library funding. The warden then begins using Andy to launder money exploited from prison labor, which is presented as a public service program. Brooks, the head of the prison library, is paroled after a very long sentence, and he finds the outside world too fast, too confusing, and too overwhelming, and hangs himself after sending a letter to his friends in prison. Andy gets some library materials, including some records, and he's spurred to play a record over the prison intercom, earning him a very long sentence in solitary confinement. After being released from solitary, Andy and Red discuss what helps Andy get through his sentence. Andy argues that it's hope. Red dismisses this as foolish. Eventually, a young man named Tommy arrives at the prison. Andy helps him learn to read and study for his GED. Tommy reveals that he was cellmates with the man who actually killed Andy's wife and her lover. Andy explains this to the warden, who dismisses it and threatens Andy, sending him to solitary again when Andy angrily challenges him and suggests that he will not reveal the money laundering in the prison if set free. The warden murders Tommy, or I guess has him murdered, um, claiming that he tried to escape. Andy then attempts to stop the money laundering, but the warden threatens him with serious consequences, as he calls it, quote-unquote, bad time, and Andy relents. Andy tells Red about how, if he could, he would flee to Mexico. And he also tells Red about a field in Maine in which there will be something for Red hidden for him under a specific rock if he were to ever be paroled. The next morning, Andy disappears. The warden and his guards discover that behind the poster, which originally was Rita Hayworth, but is now another pinup girl because years and years have gone by, he's carved a tunnel. They're unable to catch Andy, who's taken the fake identity he used to launder the warden's money. Andy drains the warden's bank accounts, the warden is exposed, and rather than go to jail himself, the warden kills himself. Red is paroled shortly after, and he fears that he might end up like Brooks. However, he remembers what Andy told him about the field and goes one day to investigate. He finds under the rock a letter inviting him to Mexico and a large amount of cash, and he skips parole to head to Mexico. The ending implies that he perhaps meets Andy on the coast, embracing the hope that is finally afforded to him. So you don't read that ending as the actual confirmation that he does meet Andy on the coast? No, I I really think that there's a lot of ambiguity there. How? They, sh- they show it. They depict it. Oh, Matt, let me tell you this. If you and I were in prison and I escaped. How the fuck would you know that I was on some bare ass beach in Mexico, no shoes on, scrubbing some old ass boat that clearly has not sailed in who knows how long. And you just found me. You just found me in Mexico on the right beach at the right time. I think you're missing some key facts about that because they're going to this particular town 
And so he's at yeah. the town, and you could just assume that he asked around for the one white guy on in that town. Yes, but I, I think I think the way the film or the last scene is shot, I think it looks just a little too good and a little too dreamy. And it comes after Red's probably the best monologue in the entire film. Of course, Red is played by uh, Morgan Freeman. And his monologue is all about hope. You know, he says, I hope I'll see my friend. I hope I can get across the border. You know, I, he says, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope. And I, I really think that the way that it's filmed and I think the way that the monologue is set up, it, it it's not it's not solid. It seems just a little too good and it looks a little too much like a dream. Now, I'm not saying that it's not what actually happens, but I think it's ambiguous enough that we could read it as um, Red's hopeful fantasy. I read that as the fulfillment of hope that Andy has been effectively preaching for the almost 20 years he's been there, right? Starting very, very early yeah. on, there's these two or three critical moments where these two have these big conversations about just that, about hope, right? And about having something to live for. And so I saw yeah. it as he's hoping and we're getting the monologue from a prior state as he is beginning this journey. And then yeah. as that's running, we're seeing him cross the border, get to Mexico. Well, we don't actually, I don't think we actually see him cross the border. We see him on the bus and he gets to that. The well, We see the Pacific. Uh, we see him get to Texas. Which there's no no Pacific Ocean there. Wait, what do you mean there's no, wait, what? There's no Pacific Ocean. No, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm thinking the Gulf. You're right. Um, but we see him get to Texas and then it fades into the image of the ocean. We don't see him cross the border, I don't think. We see him get to Texas. And that's when he's talking. He's like, I hope I can cross the border. I hope I can get there. I, yeah, I mean, I guess you could read it that way if you want. I just, I didn't think the film had any particular investment in making that ambiguous because it all seems pretty well established from the beginning to the end that I didn't think there was really narrative room for ambiguity in that way. But I could see it, you know, being the case. Well, I, I think what this, this leads to... And it's kind of funny because maybe it mirrors our own clash. Um, I think it, it it leads to the sort of clash between Andy as a you know a hopeful character and Red as a cynic, right? And maybe in this case, you're a more hopeful character and I'm a <laughs> cynic um, because I do read this much more ambiguously than. I don't know if Red is necessarily a cynic. I think he's a realist because... Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, actually, this is actually a good place for us to maybe transition to my pivotal scene because the scene I picked is, as you mentioned, right after Brooks is being released where he holds up one of the fellow inmates because he doesn't want to leave, right? Yeah. And everyone's yeah. confused by it, but Red says he's been institutionalized and there's some doubt and Red says, look, you're here for so long you start to get comfortable with these walls yeah. and before you know it, you rely on them, right? So yeah. I feel like Red is being realistic in saying, look, 50 years inside a prison, a prison like Shawshank, you're not going to be able to survive out there. And that's what he's worried right. about. And yeah. it seems what? He gets released, Red does, I mean, after 30 years. He gets paroled after 30 years. So maybe he's at that point where he can still exist. We see some of his difficulties in Isn't life. Is it just from the a little bit longer? Is is it thirty years when 
That yeah, you could be right. Because we have the three, three scenes. He's got his 10-year parole, his 20-year parole, and his 30-year parole hearing. And the first two are failures. And the third one, where he kind of just says, look, every day of my life, I think about the mistake I had. And I want to talk to my previous yeah. self. And I can't. And that's what I have to live with. And they approve it. It was at the 30-year yeah. hearing. So I think it's a, it's about 30 years, you know, probably shortly after that. Because he's not going to get released the day of his parole hearing, I'm sure. Right. At least 30 years. I Maybe I... The, the, doesn't he have his final parole hearing? He talks about how he was younger, so maybe he wasn't up per, for parole until. So maybe he had. I don't know. Who knows? I just because he's old. Morgan Freeman is older in this film. I, maybe I'm just. I'm. I'm. I'm projecting. Anyway, yes, it's at least thirty years. You're right. So back to this this pivotal scene. This is where we get Red talking. I think very realistically about their prospects on the outside. You know, he's mm-hmm. like, he probably won't even look at a library card. And yeah, yeah. Andy's not here at this point to weigh in. He's going to weigh in after they get the suicide note from Brooks. So this is really just Red talking. But the reason I picked this scene is because this is for the idea of hope or the perhaps irresponsible notion of hope, according to Red, first takes place. And I take yeah. the entire film to be about hope, which we've already sort of homed in on at the very beginning of this talk. So I think it's it's warranted. Yeah, and I will say for, I don't know if you know this, but our for our dear readers as well, well, you probably know that it's a Stephen King adaptation from a sure novella. Do. And the um, subtitle of the novella was Rita Hay- well, the, the whole title, the whole title was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And the subtitle is Hope Springs Eternal because it comes from this four novella collection um, that called different seasons, and so you've got a, um, you know, a summer, a spring, a fall, and a winter, and so this is the spring one. Hope springs eternal. That's why I'm maybe a little skeptical about the ambiguous ending because Stephen King, he's had a lot of really successful novels. Not many of them trade on ambiguity or nuance. I'll say that. Well, yes, and I don't disagree, but I think that this adaptation perhaps offers us some ambiguity but anyway we'll get to that yeah we'll get to that so before we go any further uh let's just pivotal listen scene. to our pivotal scene and then maybe yes. we will exchange theses after that oh man it's crazy as a rat in a tin shit house is what oh hey well that's enough out of you i already had you sitting in your pants fuck you would you knock it off brooks ain't no bug it's just just institutionalized. Institutionalized my ass. The man's been in here 50 years, Hayward. 50 years. This is all he knows. In here, he's an important man. He's an educated man. Outside, he's nothing. Just a used up con with arthritis in both hands. Probably couldn't get a library card if you tried. You know what I'm trying to say? Fred, I do believe you're talking out of your ass. You believe whatever you want, Floyd. But I'm telling you, these walls are funny. First you hate them, then you get used to them. Enough time passes, you get so you depend on them. That's institutionalized. Shit, you can never get like that. Oh yeah? Say that when you've been here as long as Brooks has. Goddamn right. 
send you here for life. That's exactly what they take. Part that counts anyway. Okay, so, I mean, just to kind of sum up again, this is, I think, the first turning point of the film. We're about an hour into the film at this point, and a lot of yeah. pretty terrible things have happened. We really do see the brutality and the false what is he, false reformer, the warden, how he's actually a sadist instead of this godly man like right. he thinks he is. And we see Headley, which is this this guard that you keep talking about, pops up, one who murders yes. Tommy, the one that beats Boggs and is really just a horrible person to yeah. the inmates in general. He's the right hand of the warden. And all we're seeing so far is the bad stuff that happens. And by this point, things do start to take a deeper turn. And... It's in the form of this idea of hope that once you're in the thick of it, right? Hope actually comes into play when it seems like everything else is lost, right? He's got Mm -hmm. no reason to think he's going to be released. Things have gone bad. He's been sexually assaulted, raped for several years. I think he says two or three years. Sometimes he fights them off. Sometimes he doesn't. And so I take this to be the, the actual, you know, turn of the second act, I think. Yeah. No, I think you're right. But with that in mind, let me actually give you my thesis. Yeah, throw it out. So the prison system is an institution that can wear away the humanity of its prisoners, but it can also erode the superficial and leave the ineffable qualities that make life worth living. Things like hope and friendship and determination, right? After Andy is put through this horrific ringer that I just mentioned, he loses a lot of that sense of self that we think we have on the outside of a prison, but he develops a deep friendship deep and lasting friendship he always has hope and the determination to slowly chip away with a rock hammer for 19 years to escape <laughs> right it's kind of like an incredible escape through you know 500 yards of yeah was it shit smelling sewer i think is what red says. yeah he i mean he literally crawl and i this didn't come up in the in my synopsis but he when he escapes he crawls through 500 yards of shit like he crawls through the sewer that's at least how uh red imagines it because it you know and it's implied i mean we get to see him crawl through it as red narrates one further thing about this is that andy's a banker on the outside and Mm -hmm. he still fulfills that role in a lot of ways on the inside but more importantly he's a teacher right the moment he teaches tommy and gets him to actually pass his high school equivalency although Tommy doesn't get a chance to make good on it because there's the harshness right. of this world inside Shawshank, I think he learns something very valuable about himself about being a teacher. So I'll throw out my, my, my thesis as well. Um, I really think that this is a film that suggests that hope renders impossibles possible because hard work and true determination... Uh, allow those with even the worst of situations to make the best of them, right? We see Andy. I mean, he's in the, you know, he's framed for the murder, this murder, right? Um, and and he does these things like you talk about, like he becomes a teacher and he becomes, you know, this mentor or whatever. Um, but, it, you know, you see these people in the worst of situations make the best of them. Pos- I mean, I really think this film argues that positive outlooks and this idea of hopeful forward thinking um, calculated, hopeful, forward thinking, not just sort of positivity, but like, you know, a- an actual sort of forward thinking that involves a, you know, a, a positive and hopeful outlook and, and looking for the, the best you can do, right? Allows these films character or this film's characters to achieve what they want, their goals, right? And fully embrace 
the sort of freedom that America promises. But very importantly, it, it, the freedom doesn't happen in America. They go to Mexico to do it. Mm-hmm. So, so again, I think that like hope and and hard work and sort of calculated forward thinking lets characters inhabit what America is. But again, not in America. And I think this can be capped off. Both of our thesis statements can be capped off with the moment that the warden pulls the Bible out from the safe that Andy yes. has replaced with the accounting book. And yes. you have the reminder of his quote, salvation lies within. So hope, yes. the idea of saving oneself and having those yep. inner qualities. And it's in the chapter Exodus. Yep. So the idea of leaving, leaving the country towards freedom, out of Shawshank, all of those things. Yeah, good spy on the on the Exodus, uh, because it took me this viewing to see it. And I've seen this movie a couple times. And, and for our listeners, right, the at the end, the warden goes to open his safe in which he keeps the uh, launder the money laundering documents. Um, and Andy has replaced one of them with a Bible. Um, and it's his Bible from earlier in the film uh, where he's carved out a spot for the rock hammer that he's been using to chip his way out. And very early in the film, the warden says about the Bible that salvation lies within. And Andy is like, yes, yes. And of course, literally salvation lies within. And, and like you said, Matt, he opens to Exodus. I want to take a moment to talk about the warden's fate in all of this. He is a true villain, the guard captain, Headley, whom I remember to be the bad guy in Highlander and also Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants. Shut the fuck up. He's Mr. Krabs? Yeah, you couldn't hear it? What? No! I even looked him up because I was interested. I didn't... Oh, my God. Mr. Krabs, you're yeah. a murderer. But all at the behest of the warden, and so the warden's the true devil situation. And yeah, yeah, yeah. He ends yeah. up committing suicide in his office. How how do you feel about that? Well, the, I mean, the warden is the biggest hypocrite in this film. I mean, he, you know, literally pulls out the bible and says you know we're i mean isn't his first line something like you know you're gonna i believe in discipline and scripture and you're gonna get both here the first thing he says is rule number one no blasphemy yeah and and of course i mean he's he launders money he exploits the prisoners he exploits other people that are, you know, in the, I don't know, in all these industries that he's using to exploit the, you know, like in infrastructure and shit like that. And, you know, when he sees that he's been exposed, he becomes well, the ultimate Let me rephrase for you. When he literally sees the writing on the wall. Oh, literally. Yeah. It's oh, a, yes. a little hand stitched verse that his wife had given to him. And it's just framed on his wall. And it's something about God's judgment. So he literally sees the writing on the wall in this case. Yeah, no, he literally does, right? And and the, there's that whole tense scene where he's loading the gun and you think he's going to fight the cops and he blows his brains out. He gets what he deserves. I well, mean, I don't think he does. I think he gets off easy. What he deserves is to be an inmate in Shawshank. Yeah, no, because he should have ended up in Shawshank and he should have suffered 
for the shit that he did, even just to Andy. So, I mean, he gets away with it a little bit, I think. I think suicide is too easy and out for him. So, I mean, it is very satisfying that he does get his and Andy is able to escape and really clean him out. But at the same time, I wish I wish the warden had been sent to a prison like Shawshank. They would never put him in oh Shawshank, God. of course. Oh, he and he would have been dead in a day in Shawshank. I mean, let's get real. Yeah. So, Well, in any case, Ethan, we're kind of pushing time a little bit do you think you want to turn to our three questions yeah we we didn't even hit themes but yeah let's do three questions because we'll roll that all up in there well i mean just to kind of say a token thing about about themes i think hope is very very enmeshed in this film yes absolutely and And freedom and freedom i mean this is a film about freedom and about hope and we've talked a little bit about the religious demonization and how the warden is a false prophet right he is giving false he's he's preaching christianity under false pretenses right even that he's not practicing what he preaches literally and andy's values and red's values together i think when you kind of mingle those two values being realistic but also hopeful and i think that's where you get the calculated forward looking which you mentioned earlier which i think is thematically important for a banker to have calculated forward looking of course yeah (laughs) and so i think i think we have hit some of these things a little bit and certainly we recommend that listeners dig deeper but in the interest of time do we care about this film Uh, this is this is a complicated question i think is this might actually be the most recent film we've hit so far 1994 yeah i think you're right and and re-watching it uh earlier this week i kind of had a moment at the beginning where i was like this is really weird for it to be as high as it is on the list um it's a it's a good film don't get me wrong and i really enjoy this film but it struck me maybe because of its newness i mean relatively as strange for on the list but but i think we do care about this film i mean i think that at this film's core it's about freedom and it's about what and because america of course is about freedom and this is the afi american film uh institute and it's about hope right and the american narrative is all about a hopeful idea of freedom something that is getting better right we're you know from the from the very beginning we've thought about how to take something that is not great and make it better oh god that got very close to make america great again and i'm gonna blow my brains out like the warden but but i mean we, we are thinking about freedom and we're thinking about hope right and there's this hopeful forward looking well in addition to that you have a riches to rags to riches story again right? absolutely absolutely and that's you know i mean that's deeply enmeshed in in the american identity going back to horatio alger you know the literal rags to riches story and we see it here you know yeah so similarly i care about this film i have always enjoyed this film i've always thought it was very powerful there's still scenes that no matter how many times i've seen it that still i get a little choked up at right oh my god this I agree with you one hundred percent, and I've seen this film so many times. But man, like these those long Brooks's monologue when when he's reading his letter, oh fuck me! And the Morgan Freeman's uh, speech at the end, I'm I mean even just thinking about it right now, I'm like, 
you know what I mean? It like, yeah. God, it's good. So, so maybe answer a little bit your your question about why it appears in the position it does. I think we're learning, or at least I've sort of been suspecting this. In addition to most of these films being based on movie uh, books, right? Yeah, yeah. In addition to that, I think this list really values tight narrative not necessarily short yeah. because this film was two hours and 20 minutes long right but it does not feel that long I'll right say no that. it doesn't but narrative that doesn't leave a lot of holes narrative that is thematically resonant throughout narrative that is always looking to ping earlier things and yeah. wrap them up and i think shawshank's a perfect example of this and yeah. so i care about it and i think the question do we care about it is maybe a relatively low bar to step over Absolutely. but I think I see why this film is valued, and I certainly like it. It's also a bit nostalgic for me, having seen a lot as a kid and growing up different stages of life. And so now watching it critically, I'm bound to still like it. And so I certainly yeah. care about it, regardless of you know what I think about. I don't know. I think it's just very easy to, to like a film that you've liked as a kid. And I think it's that easy. Yeah, I mean, it is. Absolutely. And we're going to continue to run into this as we go forward. But I will say that that's a hell of an observation. I, I think you're right. This idea that it does, this list does really care about tightly, you know, constructed narratives. And, and this one fits really, really well. You're right. I mean, and and this, you know, I guess comes down to, you know, the director and and the writers and Stephen King. I mean, you know, Stephen King. I've read the the the. I guess it's a novella or short story, and and that's a tightly constructed narrative, and it hits all these things. Um, and I and I think very highly of Stephen King. I have very complicated feelings about Stephen King, but his good books are his good books are very good. Yes, when Stephen King is good, he's great. When he's not so good, he's really not so good. We could all we could say he's always in rare form. Yes, I think that's a really good way to put it in our you know in terms of considering for time. But yeah, I mean I'm I'm with you, and so I think we care about this film because it does hit a lot of things, and it and it shit. This film is a good movie, Ethan. You've already kind of answered a little bit of what do we owe to this film, right? The fact yeah. that. It um, keeps this idea of a tight narrative, or a tightly coiled narrative, maybe, is a better way yeah. to talk about that, alive. I think and right. it certainly is going to contribute in a sort of passive way to the continued success of Stephen King. What else do you think we owe to this film? I mean, I think this film, in a lot of ways, really solidifies Morgan Freeman as... You know, I read I read an article. I'm, I'm I know I'm jumping from thought to thought, but I read an article a couple of years ago about how Morgan Freeman is arguably the omniscient voice of God for a good generation of people, including us. Right? Mm-hmm. We're talking like Gen, what is it, Gen Xers through, I guess, millennials, because his voice was in so many commercials and so many films, and he literally played God at one point. Um, and so I think this film where you see, I mean, I, I, I hemmed and hawed for a little bit about the opening to this because my my openings, if you haven't noticed or if our listeners haven't noticed, is that I try to start them with saying, you know, XXX is the story of 
XXX, right? And this one I really wanted to say. I'm I mean, it's, asking you to keep it PG rated, but you're always making it triple X. It's really well. It's always triple X, and you know what? Triple X with uh, with Vin Diesel. Vin Diesel, it's great. But I mean, I do think about you know the idea of like who is the driving factor in this story, and for what it's worth, Red is the really the main character. I think he's the one who drop. I mean, he's the one literally telling the story. Yeah, it's Red's story. But but he focuses a lot on Andy to understand his own situation, and it doesn't always feel like Red is the main character because he's taking a backseat and telling what's happening. And I think this film really does a very good job of, again, establishing Morgan Freeman's voice, which is a black voice, and this is important, you know, establishing a black voice as the narrator of America. And, I mean, people, you know, it, it, it's there's this great meme where there's a picture of Morgan Freeman and it's a couple of lines and the very last line is like, you're reading this in Morgan Freeman's voice. You're reading this in my voice. I can't do a Morgan Freeman voice. But, you know, it, he is... There is an omniscient element to him as, as a voice and as a person... Um, and I and I think it's not worth, you know, ignoring that it's a black voice. Yeah, I agree with all you say. In addition, I think it can be pretty clear that Red's the main character, given that Andy really never has this ultimate dynamic growth as a character. Right, He's right, right. Pretty much the same will determination i'm gonna get out of this calculating looking forward red's the one that goes from this realist which can be read as cynical to yeah. someone who utterly believes in hope so he actually does have this dynamic shift and so i think it's yeah. i think if we're thinking about it that way i think we can see him as the main character yeah and we see him grow i mean he says from the the very early portion of the movie he says you know i he, I mean, he basically says i discounted andy and then later he's like i misprized him i mean he doesn't literally say that but you know mm -hmm. he's like i i i you know i read him wrong and we become you know we identify with red in a way that we don't necessarily identify with andy i'm not saying we don't but we do it differently and again i think this is important for you know morgan freeman's i don't know status as as you know the voiceover voice in commercials and you know, uh, movie trailers and shit. And li I mean, he's literally a voiceover in this film for a good portion of it. Which Frank Darabont, the director, yeah, says that he got from Goodfellas, another list, another movie ah, yes. on the list. The idea of having a main character that also further solidifies it, doing the voiceover, right? Doing the biographical little looks at the film. Yeah, and I mean, I think that, you know, this this is a really cool thing. And, you know, in the in the novella, the main character, Red, is, a you know, like a swarthy Irish dude, like a short and stocky, red-haired Irish dude. And Red in the film is Morgan Freeman, and they even throw in a joke about the casting, you know, and Red says, you know, he goes, why do you call, or Andy says, why do they call you Red? And he's like, I guess it's because I'm Irish, you know, like they play with this idea and they fuck with race. And I think they do some, some good stuff. You know, I think they do some sort of forward thinking stuff. One last thing I'll say about the idea of what we owe this film is also, it really humanizes 
the crime narrative, right? We're more interested yeah. in the punishment part of that crime and punishment dichotomy. But I think if we really get a hum humanized, humanistic view of this. And of course, you have the Green Mile also that, that does yeah. that a lot as well. But I think this really, really solidifies that in a way that we really don't see in film, at least prior to this, in my understanding of it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is a really mainstream, you know, I mean, if we're going to think about prison narratives, I mean, this is a mainstream version where you get to see people be humans, you know, and you can see this lead forward into things like the very, very popular Orange is the New Black um, sort of narrative uh, and, and obviously other things, but but that I think is a really important cultural touchstone. Ethan, why don't we turn to our final question and let's do it. Does this film hold up? Fuck yes. I'm sorry. This film holds up like a motherfucker. Uh, you can put that on the DVD case. <laughs> this film holds up like a motherfucker. Yeah, because they're still Ethan printing Knight. DVDs of this. <laughs> hey, I have DVDs. Get out of town. No, I mean, I think it does. I, you know, it's a period piece. It's set, you know, from the 40s to the, like, uh, mid, mid to late 60s. Morgan Freeman is immortal and is God. What's his name who plays Andy does a great job. Tim I mean, Robbins. Tim Robbins. And and the cinematography is great. And I'm sorry. Listen, I sat there. And again, like I said earlier, this film I've seen quite a few times. And I'm sitting there. I'm on the, you know, I was on the verge of bawling like a baby at least three times in this film. So, yes, it holds up. Now, I will say there are no women in this film except for the cheating wife which is fucked up the the sexually attractive desirable cheating wife right yeah now i i would argue that that is probably really a holdover from stephen king's own misogyny because stephen king has some problematic shit with women in a good portion of his writing not all of it but in some especially his early stuff and this is still fairly early in his career uh so there is some problems with the fact that there are no women except for the fucking token cheating wife it's also a narrative about a men's prison so it's kind of hard to have in the 40s no less right so it's hard to have women maybe enter into that narrative to a large extent but the culmination of this film is a sort of homosocial ending as opposed to any kind of romantic ending or fulfillment of love. And there are no women allowed in that homosexual relationship. Right. I mean, this is a lot about, you know, homosocial bonds, right? Um, and, and honestly, vaguely homoerotic bonds. I mean, Andy and Red, you could argue that there's a kind of romance there that might, I mean, I would be open to even some sort of reading where there, where it's a romantic relationship in a certain way, perhaps not a physically romantic relationship, but it, at the very least emotionally, um, which is sort of cut through with this now uh, with this fucked up uh, sisters, you know, the, and that actually I think might be something that doesn't hold up well is that the, the villains part of the set of villains in this film are the you know the i mean they i think they call them homosexuals at one well point. no they don't in fact they're very careful to say andy asks are they homosexuals and oh, he says yes. no they're not they'd have to be human for that to be 
something you can right. So I think yeah. it actually kind of skirts that kind of well. Yeah, well, and, and, and it reminds me a little bit about some of the stuff I've read about uh, Silence of the Lambs, where in Silence of the Lambs, you know, there was some backlash about Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, there is an argument to be said that Buffalo Bill isn't, I mean, he's, I mean, he's not, I mean, Hannibal Lecter says that he's not a transsexual, what we would call transgender now. You know, he says he's not transgender. It, he's a he's a fucked up, terrible person. And the novel really goes deeply into his backstory, which is all about abuse and neglect. Um, but on the out, you know, outlying edges of all this, it looks like there's a weirdo who's trying to be a woman, and you know that you make him into a monster and i think that it can the, the sisters subplot can get into that a little bit i think one thing we could say about this is anything we don't look too critically at we can take as a terrible thing right it's very easy to yeah, not yeah, give someone yeah. the the benefit of the doubt or to to give to take it for granted that they have good intentions and i didn't feel anything that was overtly terrible heading this you know in terms of homosexual individuals but I could be wrong about that. But my gut reaction is that I think they're on the level, right? I don't think they're trying to put anyone down in this one. I, well, and, and, and again, I don't think necessarily that even in Silence of the Lambs, I don't think that that's what's going on there. But I think it's very easily read that way if you're looking at it really uncritically. And I think that it's the kind of thing that in 2017 we have to we're a little more wary of it or maybe it's a little more obvious to us because listen gender relations have transformed even in the last six seven years you know what i mean so that i think is is a little iffy but i think in general this film holds up pretty damn well and i think it's gonna hold up pretty damn well going into the future again there are there are a couple of moments but one thing i'll say to kind of just wrap up this idea of does it hold up i mean I, of course i agree it does hold up i was watching with my wife and she asked when was this and i said 1994 and she said wow really it's that old because it looks yeah. so good right it's shot well in addition i'll say a film about the deplorable and sometimes soul crushing nature of prisons in the united states seems to be a little prescient for 2017 yes absolutely. so i think it's a very valid subject matter to continue exploring and so i think that also maybe helps a little bit with it holding up but yeah the story itself being a period piece will stand the test of time no matter what i believe and so i think we'll be talking yeah. about this many 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 years from now yeah i think you're right i mean especially for sort of a you know and i mean it is male skewing i mean again there are no women um, except for either Rita Hayworth, who's a goddamn poster that clearly everybody's jacking off to, or, you know, the evil wife. Um, I mean, this really does hit home. I mean, this is about men being friends with other men and caring about other men in a way that's not about violence necessarily and not about aggression. I mean, this is about actual male-to-male, you know, emotional contact which again i think is something that is prescient in 2017 you know we're getting to a point where masculinity is i mean masculinity is always in flux um but this is a film from 94 that says like you know 
You've got a man who's like writing his friends and saying, I can't do this. And you know, when Brooks dies, man, I listen, if you're if you're not choking up, then you can go do your thing. I can't deal with you. You know, like it, it's tragic. It's tragic to see these guys and they you know, and and it's a feel good movie at the end of the day. And I don't know. I'll say this. Speaking of masculinity and challenged notions of it, next time on AFI's top 100 list, we have Saving Private Ryan. Oh, you're right. That's a good transition, friend. These films (laughs) feel very similar in structure in that they are about worlds that are degenerating or degrading, and yet something pure or optimistic or beautiful comes out of it yeah it was hope and shawshank and it might be something like sacrifice in private ryan yeah but i look forward to seeing that film again and next week on patreon we'll be watching a very different film the matrix (laughs) yeah we're taking a big jump well it's also a film i have a lot of nostalgia for and yeah have I seen agree. several times as a kid and not very recently at all in fact maybe it's been at least a decade since i've seen the matrix again so i'm looking forward to seeing that seeing how we take that apart and look at it from different angles but yes until then so dear listener toss us five bucks check out the matrix next week but until then I've been Matt Bazell. And as always, I'm Ethan Knight. And there will be spoilers. I'm going to do a terrible Morgan Freeman. I figured you would. But get ready for it. Just get ready. I mean, I had to preface that because no one's going to know what the fuck I'm talking about. There will be spoilers. That sounds nothing like Morgan Freeman. Nope, not even a little bit. I hate my life. There Will Be Spoilers is hosted by Matt Bazell and me, Ethan Knight. It's produced each week by Matt Bazell. Our artwork is by Becca Knight. You can find her on Twitter at BeccaTheKnight. Our great music was produced and created by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. You can check him out all over the internet. You can always find us on Twitter at SpoilersCast. And you can find us on Patreon if you would like to support us for only $5 a month. Also at Patreon.com slash SpoilersCast. Our email continues to be SpoilersCast at gmail.com. So send us some complaints hate mail and maybe a compliment or two remember please subscribe to us on soundcloud itunes or stitcher and we would really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on itunes it really helps thank you so much back home and i tell people what i do for a living they think well now that figures but over here it's uh, a big big mystery so I guess I've changed some sometimes I wonder if I've changed so much my wife is even going to recognize me whenever it is I get back to her any sense. it doesn't make any sense sir why why me why do I deserve to go why not any of these guys they all fought just as hard as me what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? James, 
Captain John H. Miller.